1: Hello and welcome to New Books in Language a channel of the New Books Network podcast Today we have with us Mr Jonathan Downs who's an editor journalist and historian as well as a novelist He's the author of the book Life in the Industrial Revolution 1770 to 1809 is also author of the book Discovery at Rosetta Revealing Ancient Egypt which was first published in 2008, and the second edition was published in 2020 by the American University of Cairo Press. And this is the book we'll be talking about today. He's also regularly written a number of articles for press and for periodicals, including History Today. Hello, and welcome to the channel. Thank you very much for joining us.
0: Hello, Madam Angie. How are you?
1: I'm good. I'm good. Thank you very much for joining us. Um So, today we'll be talking about your book, Discovery at Rosetta, Revealing Ancient Egypt. Um, So, uh, why don't we start with a very brief summary of the book, as well as uh, if you could tell us a little bit about how you started working on this topic, what led you to this fascinating research.
0: Sure, sure. Well, uh, the book really was designed as a kind of, uh, how shall I put it, a kind of one-stop shop in that there was no place uh, you could buy all the information about the Rosetta Stone and find absolutely everything you needed to know about it, i.e. where it came from, what it is, and so forth. So, for example, I think most people have heard of the Rosetta Stone. Many people know what it looks like and know what it was, but most of us don't really know precisely what it is or what it did. Uh, So this uh, was part of the problem. Even Egyptologists themselves were making... Basic errors uh, to do with its archaeological history, i.e., when precisely it was discovered, where it was discovered, and how. Um, the so the book is really that, from beginning from discovery to decipherment, and the story itself of how it came to land up in London, and not Paris or not Cairo, for example. Uh, all of this is a very twisty tale. Um, of politics, uh, soldiers, uh, scholars indeed, and even spies, frankly. Uh, the whole story is, it was absolutely magnetic where, when I started my research. Um, and I, I started it because of, as I said, the problems I'd overheard. One of the things I found uh, uh, was a French reference to, the Rosetta Stone was actually discovered in 1850 on a rubbish heap in Paris. And I thought, "Oh, well, that's obviously not correct because we know for example that it was discovered in 1799 what is this person talking about um then another one said uh, no my grandpapa brought it back in his rucksack from egypt when he served for napoleon and obviously this this young lady uh, didn't understand at the time that the rosetta stone weighed three quarters of a ton so it, it didn't fit into a rucksack so this is part of the problem all of these stories leaked through the press popular press uh, in the 19th century and tended to just uh, obscure the reality and the truth of what actually had happened. So I really wanted to, to put the, the truth plainly and simply uh, as uh, as much as possible, and explaining all of the uh, antique terms we have. Um, for example, many people are aware of the Battle of the Nile, Nelson, the Battle of the Nile. Um, had you heard of the Battle of the Pyramids, for example? The the thing about this story is it gives a context for all of these great famous events. And this this was one of the um, nice comments I had back from Publishers Weekly back in 2008. So thank you very much for putting it into a chronological context for us so we can see when and where all this stuff happened because there were so many people doing so many different things all at the same time. It's actually quite tricky to track it all down. But um, how I started was... uh, well, it was a bit of a detective story, really, um, in that uh, I was an editor at the time editing the memoirs of a Royal Marine officer who served in Alexandria in 1801. And among his papers, I found this uh, marvelous great list written out and very fine handwriting, of course. It said uh, at the top was this marvelous title. It said Relics Brought Down from Egypt and Now in the British Museum by Me on the madras 50 guns and I thought oh gosh he obviously escorted a lot of Egyptian treasures out of Egypt and these are the things in the British Museum today I looked down the list and I I can't really express what it felt like but when I came to item eight my my heart nearly stopped because it said um, a stone bearing three inscriptions black granite from Rosetta and he didn't make any comment about these pieces in his uh, his uh, diaries nothing he clearly didn't realize he had the famous rosetta stone in his possession now the thing is even in 1801 after two years it was famous it was famous across europe and this is kind of difficult for us to grasp but we think we have very fast communication everything works quickly everyone knows what's happened back then yes things moved a little bit slower but my word fame did tremble And uh, he should have known what he had uh, under his guard. He effectively escorted these things out of Egypt. Now, my first problem was nobody at the British Museum had ever heard of uh, Mr. Marmaduke Wyborn, the Royal Marine officer. They hadn't uh, any record of HMS Madras and the antiquities. Instead, as far as they were concerned, Rosetta Stone hitched up in London on HMS Egyptian under the guise of a uh, Colonel Turner. I thought, oh, what have I discovered here? So I contacted them and said, I think I found a new prime source document here. I'm not really sure what we've got. After a discussion uh, with the keeper of the department, um, uh, we worked out that this was a a sort of bill of lading, and many of these would have been handed out at the dockside so that everybody knew which ship was to take what cargo. And... uh, it started me off. At, that's where the actual uh, research began because I wanted to find out why Madras was not known by the British Museum, why they didn't know about Wyborn, and how Turner happened to get hold of item eight on Mister Wyborn's list. That's where it began, and uh, it, it it took me oh, a good two or three years before I got to the bottom of everything.
1: Okay. 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 It's a fascinating story. So let's zoom in on the different parts of this story. Um, Let's start with the French conquest of Egypt and how um, the Rosetta Stone was accidentally discovered by the French army in uh, an Egyptian fort, as you write about it.
0: Well, uh, the interesting thing is that uh, you're actually speaking to me now. I'm in Cape Town. And the whole story doesn't actually begin in Egypt at all. It begins down here. Uh, In 1795, uh, the uh, French Revolution had spread. Uh, If you can imagine the crowned heads of Europe regarding it as a kind of disease, you know, spreading around, uh, uh, infecting the the nearest monarchy. Oh my, what are we going to do? Well, uh, the Prince of Orange fled for safety to uh, England. And England sent a fleet down to the Cape to make sure that they weren't going to side with the French, the new revolution. Uh, They basically conquered the Cape in a very kindly sort of way. They landed a 1,000 men, uh, threatened all the gun positions and so forth, and uh, the Dutch East India Company uh, agreed. This is it. They'll now follow the Prince of Orange. Thank you very much. The result was France could now no longer get its ships safely from uh, the Atlantic to the Indian Ocean around the Cape because there were British ships down there who would attack them now that they were at war what was the alternative napoleon bonaparte was a a very powerful general very popular the people loved him he had done he had done tremendous things for the revolution he had just conquered uh, he was about to go off to italy and um when he got back as the great victor who had defeated the austrians he needed something exciting and what he really wanted to do was conquer egypt because he, had, he, knew very, he knew his history very well, and he was familiar with the, the ancient Suez Canal. He had the idea of cutting open the Suez Canal, sailing his ships up the Nile, through the canal, and into the Red Sea. From there, he would then travel through the Indian Ocean and attack the English at India. This was the huge strategy that, that the directory government wanted to pursue. The only problem was Egypt itself, It was part of, quite possibly, the largest empire in the world at the time, the Ottoman Empire. The French had a very good relationship with the Ottomans. Until they decided, no, we really must do this, Uh, they came up with a flimsy pretext, that is, of the the Mamluk government in Cairo, who were the governors, if you like, of this, this province in the Ottoman Empire. They were, um, they, they were extorting monies from French merchants and so forth. So there was an argument that they were going to support their, uh, their people trying to earn an honest living um, on the Nile. In the end, what they did was they created possibly the largest fleet uh, since uh, the invasion of Greece by Xerxes. This was twice the size of the Spanish Armada. There were 400 ships that Napoleon managed to uh, gather at Toulon in the south of France. They say that when it was sailing, it covered some four square miles of the ocean surface. It was enormous. This went, believe it or not, in secret. All of the people on that fleet, they had no idea where exactly they were going. They had signed on for an adventure, but didn't know where. Uh, The troops didn't know, and they only were announced uh, at Malta, where um, Napoleon... Napoleon said, we are now going to uh, relieve our our, our people on the Nile from the dreadful uh, Mamluk government, and we know that you uh, can can, uh, defeat them easily, you great soldiers of France. This was in June of 1798. They arrived on the 1st of July. They landed, and within 30 days, they had conquered the whole of Egypt. It's quite extraordinary to imagine this, uh, especially with the troop movements of the time. That is, people were literally marching. Uh, the armies, the Mamluks had nothing to counter the discipline of the French army at the time. Nothing could touch them. Um, the, for example, the, the Mamluks were famous for their cavalry attacks. But the French had what they called the square formation. They would put essentially a division of men, 8,000 men, in a square six ranks deep, which means each side of this fortress of men was about 200 feet long. And they all had their bayonets pointing outwards. If you can imagine a a hedgehog or a a hedge row, if you like, of bayonets, and this is what the Mamluk cavalry attacked. Worse, these fortresses could move as the French marched. And they marched, they they essentially destroyed the Mamluk army. A very, very, matter of two or three battles. And the Mamluk's fought a a terrible retreat all the way down to Cairo, where eventually you had the Battle of the Pyramids. And this is, um, it, it's a curious thing because uh, Bonaparte's memoirs later on, uh, he claims how he, he addressed his soldiers before the battle and said, soldiers, 40 centuries of history look down upon you. And all commentators say, Why on earth did he say this? Because we know exactly what happened in the battle. He didn't have the time to. But uh, it, it, this is the way Napoleon was when he wrote his memoirs. He, he kind of elaborated on things and made them sound better than they were or more dramatic because he had a great sense of, of history and time and, and magnificence and so forth, especially his own. And so um, looking uh, 40 centuries looking down, I, I think he, he might have said that to his generals. I'm fairly sure he did say it, though. But, uh, and this was the end, the fall of Egypt, effectively, for the next three years. And that's how it all began. Um, the discovery of the stone, um, well, as you can imagine, they have conquered Egypt. The Ottomans now, of course, want it back. And they landed a force um, at Alexandria, at Apukir Bay, um, in 1799, a year later, but were immediately defeated by the French. Now, because, they knew, because the French knew the Ottomans were coming, they wanted to reinforce all of their coastal fortresses. At Rosetta, at the mouth of the Nile, overlooking Abuqir Bay, which spans Rosetta to Alexandria rushly, it's a very wide bay, uh, there was an old tower known as the, the Burj al-Rashid. Rosetta in Arabic is al-Rashid. And so they, they knocked it down. They pulled it down. When they were pulling down an old rampart wall, uh, the stones fell apart, and there in the ditch they recognized, well, the officer in charge, who happened to be one of the scholars that came along. He was a scholar engineer. Noticed that it was actually an inscribed stone. It wasn't just a foundation stone. It was very dark, and he saw the inscription on it. He jumped into the ditch, brushed off the surface of it, and within moments, they all knew they had found something very, very special. The Rosetta Stone is very nearly a meter long, it's uh, I'm mixing metric and imperial here, but it gives every one of the listeners a good idea. Nearly mm. a foot thick, so this thing weighs three quarters of a ton. It's the p- perfect building block if you think about it. So it's hard to understand why it would have been used in building an old fort. It had been used in the 15th century, and the thing is, there's very little stone around the delta, uh, the Nile Delta, to to build things with. So if you have broken ruins, anything as there were. There were temples broken at Sais, which was nearby. They would have dragged the stone to the site and built their fortress out of it. And the Rosetta Stone was at the bottom. So they pulled it out of the ditch, realized they'd found something very, very important, and sent it straight down to the very new Institute of Egypt in Cairo. And it was escorted all the way by the lieutenant who discovered it. And that was Pierre Bouchard. And uh, he is now world famous. Uh, in fact, his, um, uh, his home in France uh, is, is as equally famous as Champollion's, actually. So Bouchard was uh, quite a character um, by, by himself. And um, the, the stone made it to Cairo from there. Meanwhile, they rebuilt their fort, which became Fort Julien. You, uh, history is a bit fuzzy about this. It's often known as Fort Saint-Julien, uh, Julien with two L's, Roubaix Julien with one L. It was named after an aide, an aide de camp of Napoleon Bonaparte. He was a, a very young officer, Officer Julien, and uh, he was beloved by the army, absolutely adored. But he was killed uh, just before um, the uh, Battle of the Nile, which was about a month after they'd arrived. So they named the fort after him rather than the Saint, Saint-Julien. So Fort-Julien is the original French term for this place. It is at Rosetta overlooking Aboukir Bay. So that's how it all happened. Um, it, there's stories abounded of French soldiers marching through the desert, and one of them trips over this object in the sand, and lo and behold, there is the Rosetta Stone. No, that did not happen. Um, the... The other thing was that in finding this broken piece uh, in the ditch, they thought, oh, are there any other pieces around? The work gang and the regiment scoured the area. They dug everything up, looking for anything, because they discovered that this was the most important part. The three inscriptions on the face of the Rosetta Stone, what they didn't know at the time, until they read the Greek at the very bottom, the very last line of it, they didn't realize it was the same inscription but in three scripts in two languages effectively so very briefly at the top you've got 14 lines of hieroglyphs in the middle almost intact completely is a handwritten form of egyptian effectively it was known as demotic it's just a greek word for popular uh, the latins would call it vulgar um, and at the bottom is ancient greek so it's, it's kind of difficult to get your mind around this, but since Alexander the Great, uh, Greek was the lingua franca, if you like, of the Nile Delta, especially Alexandria, uh, for hundreds of years. So you could speak Greek to most people and they would be able to understand you and then reply in Egyptian or what have you, or Arabic indeed. Um, the last line of the Greek text, which the French could read, of course, said, this inscription shall be inscribed on stone in ancient, sorry, sacred, uh, popular, and Greek. So I saw the hieroglyphs with the sacred writings, and the popular was the handwritten cursive demotic in the middle, and at the bottom was the ancient Greek. And they realized they had a code key. If they could correlate the ancient Greek, which they could read and decipher, with the script above, and indeed the hieroglyphs above, they might be able to crack the code hieroglyphs now when i've told people this I, i'm actually quite terrible when i'm at the british museum and i'm standing in front of the rosetta stone i start to give impromptu lectures about it. <laughs> i rather annoy the british museum guides but anyway, when people are saying oh my gosh there it is i say well yes uh, they didn't know whether you should read it right to left or left to right or up and down and so forth and they really didn't they knew absolutely nothing they took nothing for granted uh they even used mathematics to try to work out what the words might mean. Uh, that is, if the Greek, uh, a, a Greek term was so many inches from the top or the left or the right, they would compare it with the demotic and try to compare it with the hieroglyphs at the top. That didn't work. They did absolutely everything they could. And these were the little the gang of Samoes that went with uh, Bonaparte to Egypt were the cream of French academia. They were the absolute greatest minds in, in, in Europe at the time that had gone with the French. And they were stumped, absolutely stumped. Now, it's an ancient mystery because the last priests effectively died out in Egypt under the Romans. That meant there was no one left surviving who could actually decipher hieroglyphs nobody could tell anyone what they actually meant now anyone who's visited egypt you see hieroglyphs everywhere they were on every tomb every temple every monument they were telling egyptian history but nobody could hear it nobody could understand it and this was why the rosetta stone was so important and it took 23 years actually to crack the code even from the discovery of the stone itself
1: So you write in your book that they were also looking for uh, other examples of uh, such multilingual inscriptions so that they could perhaps compare the Rosetta Stone with, with those uh, and which could possibly help them decipher the uh, hieroglyphs. So um, Yes,
0: yes, yes. It, it, it's in fact, um, uh, it's quite an amusing little story about that in that the Institute of Egypt uh, down in, uh, in Cairo, it was fairly close by if not next door to uh, a mosque in uh, Nasriya. Um, they visited the mosque and they found that the uh, that the top step of the entrance to the mosque was actually a carved Rosetta Stone type uh, stele. They thought, oh my goodness, look, we've got another one. Uh, it's actually, it was just two scripts. It was just, uh, it wasn't like the Rosetta Stone, which had three, uh, but they thought they'd have that too. So they just started to dig it out. Uh, they dug this stone up to the howls of the imam and, and the people there, and they just carried it off to their institute uh, to examine it. Uh, then that night, uh, the, the locals crept into the institute, stole it, put it back, and put it back into the, the mosque steps. The French did it again. They went back and dug it up and took it back again. They did this several times before they, they finally talked, the imam explained, and the imam said, no, we want it back. And uh, the French said, well, in the end, uh, we can come and study it on your step if you don't mind. No, we don't mind. And that was that. So the the, the stolen step um, was returned, at least. Um, they found um, a what they called the bilingual stone uh, in Menouf. Uh, that is, it was a sheet of uh, stone, not as thick as the Rosetta Stone. It had two scripts on it, and it was being used as a, as a garden bench, actually, uh, by somebody who had just put it on two stumps, and this is where he sat every day. Uh, the, the, the French stumbled on these things all the time, but none of them were as clear as the Rosetta Stone. None of them had the Greek at the bottom that they could actually read, and that, that was what made it so special. But in saying that, I have to explain, uh, a lot of people don't understand, the, the, the Greek at the time in on that stone, on the Rosetta Stone, it's very difficult to read. I, it's not broken into words. You get the impression that the, uh, the mason who actually carved the inscription, was well, quite possibly Egyptian, and he was uh, carving uh, a foreign language as far as he was concerned. Now, imagine, for example, you don't know the script uh, and you just start uh, inscribing a uh, foreign, if, if I were to start inscribing Chinese, for example, I will make all sorts of errors uh, because I don't uh, have any knowledge of it whatsoever. It, you get that impression. So, when you look at the Greek, you find that the French made mistakes in their translation, mistakes which they would never have made in, in Europe, where the Greek was laid out as on a papyrus or a, a paper or a document and so forth. So, uh, many scholars said, Oh, look, the French, uh, they've made terrible mistakes here. You know, they don't really know what they're doing. Absolute nonsense. They knew exactly what they were doing. And uh, it was very difficult to get to the bottom of the, the truth of the thing, essentially.
1: Okay, so as you mentioned earlier, the Rosetta Stone currently sits at the British Museum. So, um, so what happened after the discovery of the Rosetta Stone? How did it ultimately come to be possessed by the British um, and not the French or the Egyptians?
0: Um, well, the this is the origins of lithography as well, Qu- quite literally using stones for writing. They put printer's ink on the Rosetta Stone and uh, made printed copies, put uh, paper on top, uh, rolled these up and sent them back w- with uh, uh, returning troops or uh, specialists back to France. So France had negative and positive copies they could then make of the Rosetta Stone inscription uh, within about, I'd say, uh, six months, of the discovery of the stone. So its its fame started to spread from then. That That is when everybody knew about it. In 1800 in particular, a year later, it, it exploded across the continent. So you then had uh, linguists and specialists from, uh, from Paris, from Sweden, uh, from Britain, all wanting to look at the new inscription, trying to solve the problem of hieroglyphs. When eventually uh, the British and the Ottomans counterattacked, the French were, they were in a very difficult position. Their their army was getting smaller and smaller. Uh, They obviously could not sustain Egypt as a faraway colony. The British had cut off their supplies from France. It was only a matter of time. And that time came up in 1801. Uh, The British uh, attacked. They landed at Alexandria, uh, well, Aboukir Bay. And fought a tremendous battle just outside Alexandria, Cairo fell to the Ottomans and uh, British uh, expeditionary force, and Alexandria was buttoned up um, as a fortress and put under siege. When eventually the British general got in touch with the French general in Alexandria, he explained, we are not coming in to accept your surrender or indeed to relieve you of your starvation or water and so forth, until you agree to the terms of this treaty. The treaty incorporated what is known as uh, Article 16, if I correctly, that is, the Articles of Capitulation of Alexandria, as it's it's called, which is the Surrender Treaty for the time, stipulated that the French must release all of those treasures that they had gathered during their time in Egypt, and particularly among these, the Rosetta Stone, or the Rosetta Tablet, as they refer to it often. Uh, The French general believed that this was his own personal property, and he was a real character. Um, uh, He was a short, fat little man, and nobody, uh, none of his colleagues liked him either. Uh, He had uh, uh, terrible temper, and the Samuels and the French scholars themselves had fallen foul of him, and at one point, they tried to escape Alexandria by sneaking out of the boat. Uh, the French general, Menu was his name, tr- tried to bombard them uh, with field guns in the harbor uh, until Sir William Sidney Smith, uh, who was in charge of part of the blockade, decided to go on board the ship with the Samuels back into the harbor, uh, saying that to Menu Essentially, if you try to sink Samos, you will have sunk Sir William Sidney Smith, and we will not look kindly upon that. So, many backed off, there was endless letters back and forth between the two generals, until finally, these two particular uh, scholars from Cambridge, they were on a, what was known as a peregrination, a very, very long voyage. They went all the way through Europe and Russia and the Holy Land, and they wound up in Cairo, where they... They started speaking with the Viennese consul, who said he knew where the Rosetta Stone was in Alexandria, but he also knew of something even more valuable. So these two have rushed down the Nile to Alexandria, spoke to the general, who immediately said, Very well, you are now co-opted as my spies, and you can go in behind French lines into Alexandria and come out with the Rosetta Stone particularly because he was fed up with this siege, wanted it to end, and he wanted the French general to give it up and surrender. In they went. Um, Effectively, the local Alexandrians wanted the whole thing to end as well, so they helped the English. More than this, these two English scholars became very good friends with the savants and actually spoke up for them uh, on their behalf to the British general, who wanted to uh, confiscate all of their treasures. Now, it's not just archaeological treasures, but they had stuffed birds, reptiles, anything they had found they were taking back to Paris to study, new species, all sorts of things like this that the British were just going to take from them. Um, the two British scholars, Daniel Clark and John Cripps, his student, said, no, no, please, uh, we can safe. let them have their own collections, please. So the, uh, the Savants and the English scholars actually had a a, a nice connection where the two generals were at loggerheads, uh, but the Savants and the English scholars, they'd got together. It was a, a marvelous moment of cooperation. And it's at this point that you get the impression that the French actually handed the stone over. But it was not the French army that did it, it was the Savants. Someone whispered in Daniel Clark's ear to go to the uh, warehouse section in Alexandria. He wrote in his diaries essentially that with this Savile officer, they found an ox cart amongst French General Menu's baggage, and they lifted up a Persian carpet, and there it was, sitting there, the Rosetta Stone. He immediately called for the British army to come in uh, with some engineers and artillerymen and a gun carriage. They loaded the thing onto a gun carriage, lashed it down, and took it out uh, safely to the British lines. And that was effectively the end of French Egypt. French troops were then escorted home. And that is why this the Rosetta Stone wound up in London and not in Paris. It was spoils of war. And in fact, if you go and visit the stone, indeed you can look at this online, I'm sure, painted on the side of the stone is uh, se- seized by the British Army, Egypt. So it was a trophy. As far as the army was concerned, it was a trophy. But in reality, it was handed over from one group of scholars to the other. Also, the French scholars didn't really trust Menu. They would suspect that Menu, Menu might act actually be true to his word, consider it was his own personal property, and it might wind up just sitting in the foyer of his own grand home somewhere. No idea. It needed further scientific study, and they could, they could see the writing on the wall. The British army was outside, and here were the English scholars. Give them the stone. And that's exactly what happened.
1: Okay, uh, so now coming back to the to the story of the the deciphering of the hieroglyphs, uh, you said earlier that it took twenty three years until until the hieroglyphs could be deciphered. Um, so so why don't we uh, talk a little bit about um, that side of things? So what happened? Um, so the French savants uh, started working on it, and then several other scholars have worked on it. Um, so, uh, could you tell yeah. us a little bit about that? Yeah.
0: Well, um, as I say, they started immediately from the printed copies, but as many of them had no reference whatsoever for hieroglyphs or even spoken Egyptian, they didn't know the difference between spoken Egyptian and, indeed, and Arabic, for example. Um, and indeed, that central band of script in the middle, which is called Demotic now, at the time was mistaken for Syriac or Coptic. They weren't quite sure. In the end, they created this new script for it. They call it Demotic. Um, this was worked on by Arab and Oriental specialists, particularly Sylvester de Sassy in Paris, and uh, Thomas Young in England had worked with a Chinese script as well. It was Young who actually came up with the idea that um, those names in cartouches, This is now popularly known, but effectively uh, they are circled in hieroglyphs. He believed that these were special names, most likely the names of kings, because he had found with Chinese that Chinese script will interpret, whereas a foreign name has to be phonetic, because it would not necessarily have a meaning in the Chinese language that was writing the script, say in Mandarin, for example. So, he believed the same thing of the Greek names that the Egyptians would try to write down. They couldn't, uh, for example, give, give a meaning for the name Ptolemy. They could, the best they could do was actually recreate the sounds. Therefore, he believed that those kings' names were somehow phonetic. The strangest thing about Young's work is he didn't really take it further than that. Um, there seems to be a stop. No one really understands why. What he then later went on to do was he successfully worked with de Sassi and uh, really translated the Demotic. This was quite an achievement, but it is eclipsed largely by the work of, of course, Jean Francois Champollion and his work on the hieroglyphs. Now, Champollion was a student of de Sassi. So, one of the things I talk about in the book is it's very common when talking about the Rosetta Stone that there is an Anglo-French race, the race to decipher the, the hieroglyphs, to be the first ones to, to win this national uh, contest. It's very hard for us to understand, but our First World War, the Great War, lasted four years. The Great French War, as it was known, lasted 22 years. It involved almost all of the colonies of Britain and France, and in a way you could look at it as a First World War. They desperately wanted to support their nations, and this France and England were constantly at loggerheads. They always have been. So when peace came after Waterloo, uh, the work on the hieroglyphs really began in earnest, and they started to cooperate. Um, Really, the scholars ignored the propaganda. Yet some, for example, Henry Salt, he really did want Young to be the first to do it so that the English could be there, but largely because also they wanted uh, the contracts and permissions from the new Egyptian government to go into Egypt and bring more treasures back to the British Museum, more than, say, for example, the Louvre. So there was competition there too. Uh, This competition went all the way across Europe, and that when eventually Berlin was created as the capital... Uh, in, in Germany, um, the the new museum there was to outdo the Louvre and the British Museum. The, the Europeans, they were all at this constantly, um, struggling against each other <laughs> for prestige. Um, when Champagnoe first, <laughs> when the stone was discovered, Champagnoe was nine years old. He was a gifted linguist, and he grew up with the knowledge that the Rosetta Stone existed and hieroglyphs had to be deciphered. The one advantage he had over any of them was that he could speak and sing and read Coptic. He believed that spoken Egyptian actually had reference to Coptic. Therefore, he applied the same phonetic rules that Coptic had to the hieroglyphs. It still took a very long time to work. Effectively, he ran out of hieroglyphs. The Rosetta Stone has only 14 lines, and they're broken, so you can't really be sure... You need much more material. So he had explorers going up the Nile, bringing him back uh, sheets of papyri with more and more hieroglyphs on them that he could try to pick and choose. His breakthrough came when um, an obelisk was discovered with a a bilingual inscription on it in Greek and hieroglyphs. Now, this, this was unusual. It was often hieroglyphs and demotic, But this was Greek and the hieroglyphs, so quite specific. And they knew that the obelisk said the names Ptolemy and Cleopatra. These two names share letters. When you look at the cartouches, you can compare the two and find those matching letters. It was a real shock to discover that effectively hieroglyphs were a combination of our own style of alphabet with logograms, pictograms, that is, ideas. So, for example, a drawing of a hawk could represent swiftness or speed or accuracy, but it could also represent the sound of a hawk or, indeed, the sound of the word that a hawk would be, that you'd say in Egyptian, of the letter H, for example. It isn't, but it's just an example. This was quite a shock. They realized that that they were using hieroglyphs to make specific sounds. As soon as he did this, he thought of his Coptic. And one of the first cartouches he stumbled across was one which more, what he believed, was a sun. When he looked at the sun, he thought, well, in Coptic, that is ray. And he knew that the two feathers at the end of the cartouche would be the sound of two S's, the sss. And in the middle, he believed that was the miss sound, which he recognized also from Coptic, to do with uh, a I believe. When he put this together, he said, Re rameses 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 he realized he had stumbled across the cartouche that could be for rameses he then applied it to another cartouche this cartouche did not have a son instead it had a picture of an ibis the bird uh, the sacred ibis bird which is very common in the delta in particular and of course it is the head of the god Foth, the traditional um, uh, representations the egyptian gods Thoth, of course, is in Greek pronunciation of tooth or Tut. And you'll recognize that sound from Tutankhamun. So, in a way, if you were to say Tutankhamun in Greek, you would start with Thothankhamun. So, Thoth, the god here, and then Mes as well. Thoth, Mes. He'd now found one of the, another famous Egyptian pharaoh. He applied all of these rules, one after the other, to create an alphabet. And apparently, he sat up from his desk, bolt upright, ran into his brother's office next door, shouted, Je tiens l'affaire, a French version of, "By George, I think I've got it, and then passed out. He was apparently unconscious for nearly a week. It was exhaustion. And that is effectively the cracking of the code. Right there, back, it was done. It then... Was it took some years before it was proven and the uh, full alphabet was de- was developed and deciphered, but that was in eighteen twenty two. Uh, it had taken years and years, um, specifically of Champollion's own work, um, and uh, it was up to even German Egyptologists uh, Lepsius, for example, they found other stones. So there are many people who say, "Oh, well, I've seen the Rosetta Stone in Paris." I said, no, no, you haven't yes, I, I certainly did. So what they'd actually seen was the Canopus Stone, for example, which is similar to the Rosetta Stone. It's actually in better condition and it's it's complete. Uh, it's just it, 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 was, um, uh, this, it was made much earlier and was discovered much later. Uh, so the Rosetta Stone is still the first that was discovered and the most important as a result. It started the whole quest and that, that is why it was so valuable. It was called the Gem of Antiquity. By the English scholars,
1: fascinating, fascinating. Um, so, what does the Rosetta Stone say? What do those inscriptions say?
0: Oh yes, I haven't <laughs> I <am, laughs> the past. I just wish it were exciting, like you know, X marks the spot. Go here, you will find the treasure. No, no, it's effectively a government circular. <laughs> it's um, a, a little bit. It's effectively the um, the priests writing down what pharaohs tax. Uh, relief as promises. The promises of Pharaoh's tax relief. So, the priests have promised, if you let us off this, we will set up a cult to the Pharaoh here, and it will be in this form and in these places. It was a declaration. If it were in any other culture, it would have been, for example, uh, a notice pinned on a bulletin board. But uh, The thing is that, at the time, on the temple steps, where the sun in the right position the very, very light, lightly incised carving of the stone would have been very much easier to read, and all would have known why the temple was there and why you must worship at the feet of Pharaoh.
1: So, um, the question of possession or repatriation of the Rosetta Stone um, uh, to its native land is is a topic of hot debate. Uh, and and so, um, what's your uh, what's your view on that?
0: Well. It's a peculiar thing because almost every antiquity has its peculiar story and you can't really apply all of the same sort of rule to every antiquity. For example, uh, the bust of Nefertiti in Berlin at the moment, it's considered so fragile that it could actually be damaged if it were moved. Uh, that is, however, a very good argument for leaving it where it is, isn't it? Um, the uh, the Egyptian... Um, under the time the Supreme Council of Antiquities, uh, under Zaki Hawass, uh, back in 2003, I believe, delivered their demand for it to be returned. And this is something that the British Museum, um, it's its quite difficult with the British Museum, and that you're not quite sure if it is an organ of the British government, if it is uh, a trust independently run, or um, uh, it's a private operation. It's really unclear around the world. And with this demand, uh, it was sent through the British Embassy, and they weren't really sure what to do with it. It was eventually forwarded to um, the keeper. They then checked the actual um, treaty that was signed in 1801. Uh, Now, this was actually rather staggering to me, that Since its arrival at the British Museum in 1802, nobody in London until 2004 had actually checked the paperwork to ensure that they did indeed own it. (laughs) It sounds kind of odd, but there was just the assumption that because it was there, clearly it was theirs, you know. Um, But in 2004, they checked the treaty. The signatories to the treaty include a man called Osman Bey, at the bottom of the list. Osman Bey was the last surviving Mamluk at the time, representing, if you like, the government of Egypt. However, he was representing the government of a military dictatorship, the Ottomans. The Ottoman army completely occupied Egypt at the time. So the idea that Osman Bey was not under any duress whatsoever to sign this document uh, for the British to get the French out of his country is utter utter nonsense, really. It's, um, if he had put any kind of struggle up, uh, he would have been just stamped down immediately. There's no question. The idea that the Egyptian government, therefore, willingly handed over all of those treasures to Britain is, in itself, arguable in court. It's a moot point. The other thing you can ask is whether treaties or agreements between, if you like, empires that no longer exist in a context which no longer exists. Uh, when faced with modern nation states, which we are now, and we're all conscious of who we are and where we live and our country, yet we're not in that same situation as they were in the 18th century. Why should they still apply? So my question to all of this argument of repatriation of archaeological uh, treasures and artifacts is at the time, uh, they believed they had the right to acquire it. But just because of that, what gives European museums or American museums or any museum the right to retain them? No one's really addressed this yet. Now, I mentioned the Bust of Nefertiti as an example. There's another one, the Louvre, which is the ceiling of uh, the Dendra Temple. These things are vast. Uh, uh, The Bust of Nefertiti is very delicate. However, of these three objects, the Rosetta Stone is without question the strongest, the most able to be shipped abroad for viewing by publics around the world. I came up with the idea, now, should it be repatriated to Egypt? Well, uh, arguments in England have been, well, what did the Egyptians do with it? They used it as a building block. They didn't understand it. They, they weren't interested. And this, of course, is partly true, but it's not true as well. Uh, the French discovered it. The French deciphered it. The British preserved it. So, in a way, it belongs to the history of those three nations quite intricately, and it binds them together. They have a special joint um, history here, Britain, France, and Egypt. So I I concede the idea that, in fact, it should be owned by the three nations in a, if you like, a a sort of triple alliance, overseen perhaps by UNESCO, and it could tour between the three great museums of each nation, uh, the Grand Cairo in Egypt and the Louvre in Paris and so forth. In fact, it has visited the Louvre, I believe, all once in 1972. On the 150th anniversary of the decipherment of hieroglyphs. Um, That was its only time. Other than that, it's been in London at the British Museum. The British Museum is more than happy for artifacts to go on tour, uh, I was told, by the keeper at the time. It's just a matter that the recipient museum has to sign an undertaking that they recognize the fact that it is the property of the British Museum. And this was the great difficulty. It's a cultural difficulty for Supreme Council of Antiquities in Egypt to, to to swallow that and say yes, all right, we accept the fact it's yours. A- that is an awful thing to say. Um, and in a popular series of interviews, for example, just in the street, are uh, going into shops, uh, Egyptians can be brought to almost tears when they are told about the bust of Nefertiti and no, you can't have it back. And they say why not? It is it is ours. Um, these things can be very emotive. But I think that a constantly touring exhibition, if you like, five years in each capital, uh, would have been a marvelous solution to this. I dare say UNESCO would find it uh, an administrative nightmare of liability and insurance, but it's just a thought. And of all these antiquity delicate antiquities, delicate pieces, giant pieces like the Pergamon Museum, the Pergamon altar is a building. You, You can't just lightly repatriate that and you can't tour it. The uh, Rosetta Stone could be crated and toured, just like it was in 1801 and 1802. So, in this respect, it is not fair of European institutions to say, no, you, you don't have the facilities to take care of it anymore. You're not interested. They are interested. They do have the facilities, and you can let it go back. It's a matter now that what, what actually is it? In the British Museum, that stone is a relic, it's served its purpose, it has been deciphered. Um, Why not, in all magnanimity, hand it back and say, we give this back with grateful thanks for having enriched all of our histories, all of our pasts, and for bringing our peoples somehow, in some small way, together. In a way, that's what the stone was intended to do. It was intended for all the peoples of Egypt to be able to read it and understand it. And indeed, if they could have, they might have put it in English and French, so everyone anyway, could read it at the time. But it is, if you like, a, a multilingual ambassador.
1: So, definitely, the the story of the Rosetta Stone, the story of the deciphering of the hieroglyphs, it was it was very interesting as it was complex. Um, and fascinating. Um, so the last question that I'd like to ask you is: is um, what's the path forward from here? Um, in terms of your own research, we see how much research has gone into writing this book, um, and and collecting all the information, uh, uh that has made, made its way into the book. Uh, so are you still working on it? Do you plan on an extension? I'll
0: plan on that, of of a, third, a third edition. Uh, no, in fact, the, the second from Cairo came up because of a, a glaring omission in the first edition, which was the Arabic scholars, the work of uh, Islamic science, in that it was understood by the Christian Europeans that uh, Islamic, uh, 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 fundamental Islam did not want to know about these pagan inscriptions in Egypt. And this is just not true. Uh, many the caliph of Baghdad, for example, commissioned studies, uh, the great dual nun, Uh, He lived like Champollion in temple ruins, uh, 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 driving himself mad, trying to decipher hieroglyphs. And in fact, Ibn Washiya got so far as a partial alphabet. So these were a thousand years roughly before Champollion. But because of the divide, the cultural divide, European science uh, didn't know. Uh, Islamic science had effectively informed European science in medicine, Uh, anatomy, surgery, all of these things for centuries. Uh, Arabic uh, doctors and surgeons, were their their work was followed to the letter in Europe. But for some reason, the work on ancient Egyptian hieroglyphs just passed people by. However, uh, it, it is understood that Sylvester de Sassi, who could speak and read Arabic, knew very well about this, and he must have told Champollion, so it's a very contentious topic at the moment, that Uh, Arabic nations are saying, no, no, look, we did work on this too. And uh, also, we believe Champollion used our work and and didn't mention it at all. Well, it's more than likely Champollion was aware of the Arabic scholars' work. It is also more than likely that Champollion just dismissed anyone else's work out of hand. He was a a terrible braggart and very headstrong and full of himself. In fact, he alienated de Sassi, his tutor, quite regularly. De Sassi even warned Sir Thomas Young, don't correspond with Young Champagnon, he'll just take your work and uh, use it for his own ends, all these sorts of things, the typical academic rivalry stuff. But uh, the, the truth is that Coptic and Arabic must have informed Champagnon's thinking, and it did help. Arabic scholarship did do work that did lead in the end to some further understanding. And that's what I wanted to add to the the book at the time. Hmm. A third edition, Uh, at the moment, no plans really, but um, I have been, if you like, fictionalizing the story to uh, put into novels. So we have more of this, and I really, really just wanted the whole story to be digestible so that. Everybody could read it. Everybody could become fascinated by it and read about Nelson, the Battle of the Nile, Napoleon at the Pyramids, and it's an extraordinary story. It was the greatest adventure of the age. And in fact, when the French packed their ships ready to go to Egypt, ah, you could equate it to a NASA mission to Mars. It was like, it felt like that. When you read the actual comments of people who went, they say we have no idea where we're going, but we cannot wait to get there.
1: Okay, awesome. So we'll we'll wait for that, uh, yeah. and uh, so that was that was very interesting. Thank you very much uh, for joining us. It was it it was it was a great pleasure.
0: Great pleasure. Thank you. Thank you very much.